US businessman Dan Friedkin takes Redbird over. has recently made waves. MLB and NBA appear to be the lead. Ed Sheeran becomes Ipswich Township. Saudi Prince adds French side Chateau. NFL finalises new 11-year media rights deal with Amazon. To some, esports was the fad that just never died. And according to most data, it not only didn't die, it is thriving. According to New Zoo's 2021 Global Esports and Live Streaming Market Report, global esports revenues will grow to $1.84 billion in 2021, a year-on-year positive growth of 14.5%, up from $947.1 million in 2020. I'm Reese Lenarduzzi, and this is Sportonomic, a podcast brought to you by Athlon Partners. In this episode, I look at the ever-growing world of esports. But as promised, the end of last episode, I'll cover blockchain, crypto and NFTs in sports soon, with some very exciting guests. Today's guest is Mark Edwards, the CEO of Order. Before moving into esports, Mark had worked in traditional sport in AFL at the Melbourne Football Club and motorsports with walking shore racing, hence providing incredible insight. If the numbers don't convince you, a mere peek at recent headlines might. Just this week, NBA Hall of Famer Shaquille O'Neal was at the centre of the announcement of the naming rights deal with the General Automobile Insurance Services, for whom Shaq is a spokesperson, that will rebrand NRG's team that plays Rocket League as the General Insurance NRG team. Shaq is, of course, an investor in NRG. That deal, just the tip of the iceberg. Also recently... A reported $210 million deal between Team Solo Mid, or TSM, and a cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, that will see the team now go by TSM FTX. Other similar deals include those between Dignitas and digital bank QuantumPay, with the esports team renamed to Dignitas QuantumPay, as well as a deal between JDG Gaming and Intel, the team renamed JDG Intel Esports Club. The point? These huge brands see value in paying hundreds of millions of dollars to be connected to esports and the names of esports teams. Another sign of the growth and buzz around esports is that music providers and platforms are also on board the Esports Express. Sony Group Corporation, the parent company of Sony Music Group, have nearly doubled down on its initial investment of $250 million last July, tipping in another $200 million into Fortnite maker Epic Games. In August 2020, Spotify signed a multi-year partnership with League of Legends publisher Riot Games to be the official audio streaming partner for League of Legends esports global events. Most recently, in this interesting space of crossover between the now adjoining worlds of esports and music, Warner Music Asia has inked a deal that will make it the exclusive music partner to juggernaut gaming platform Esports Player League, or ESPL. Order is a leading team in Australian esports, consistently in the top two across League of Legends, Counter-Strike Global Offensive and Valorant. I spoke to Order CEO Mark Edwards about the behind the scenes of a gaming organisation, as well as the differences and similarities in management and administration of a traditional sports organisation and an esports organisation. 
For us, it's it's more looking at gaming and where esports fits into that. So, esports is very much the professional side of of our industry. And if we look at you know professionalism in general from a sporting perspective, it's the the level of sophistication and 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 high performance and and professionalism that is embedded really in in traditional sports is is very similar to the back end of of what we have in in esports. And you know, if you take say um, AFL for example, the back end administrative talent, if you like, is very much rooted in, uh, I suppose, traditional corporate structure, which is which is very similar to what we've said about creating an order. Even from from the top down, you know, we have a, an administrative team that is very corporate, but then at the front end, like footy, you know, footy is a, a very much a, a sporting front end. We have a, a creative front end. So, if you have a look at the makeup of our management team, it, it's it's you know, it's it's finance, it's ops, it's it's marketing, it's brand, it's commercial. So it's it's all very very similar to traditional sporting structure. But then if you look at how it actually differentiates to traditional sport, is really that front end. We're competing in front of people that can engage with our talent on a, on a completely different level. You know, we're not typically in stadiums. While some games are played in stadiums, a lot of it's online. And a lot of our, our industry also exists from a streaming and content perspective. So the ability to engage one-on-one is, is, is very different. So while there are a lot of similarities to traditional sport, it is very much embedded in that, that um, administrative space, whereas, yeah, that front end is, is very, very different. And, and this question comes up a lot, but it certainly feels that because of the influence of sporting organisations and the word esports in general, people tend to think they are almost exactly the same in structure. But if you, if you really bet it down, it's probably more similar to something like the music industry or, or other creative industries or even I, I, I like this, the, um, the analogy of, say, Quicksilver. You know, Quicksilver is a, is a brand that's embedded in professional surfing and that's the, the very professional side of that, that sport. But then if you have a look at what they've built their audience from and that's really the, the casual surfer that, that you know, chucks on his boardies on the weekend and, and, and goes for a surf or, or you know, knocks off early and, and goes for a surf. And that's really what our industry is built on. It's, it's not necessarily the professional side. That's the aspirational kind of side to the sport. But really, the industry is, is embedded in the casual gamer. It's you, know, you, know, you or I putting the kids down to sleep at night and, and then jumping on the PC for a couple of hours to, to game. Um, you know, th- there has been a, a real history of, of sporting organisations investing in esports. Um, but a lot of them have done that for, you know, audience cross-pollination and, and the ability to attract a, a gaming audience into their own audience themselves. It's, it's worked in, in some instances, but I think the, the problems tend to arise when, you know, a lot of team sports tend to suppress the ability to have, and I, and I don't want to speak out of school here, but, but personalities and, you know, there's so much corporate money involved in traditional sport these days that they're often encouraged to act in a certain way and somewhat stifled whereas some other industries um, or some other sports I should say allow that that personality to flourish and a lot of that is probably less team sports and more individual sports where you know things like tennis surfing skateboarding you know basketball is probably the 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 one that is an outlier and all that um, where they are allowed to be a certain personality but with fit within a team as well so when I look at my position and there, and one of the reasons I joined order it was very much to level up the sophistication in the industry and I liken it to what you know let's say most traditional sports in Australia were probably like twenty or thirty years ago before the big broadcast deals and and you know the broadcast money really bought the ability to start to attract high level of talent 
from from outside industries and you started to see people coming across from finance and banking, the big four, and really leveling up the, the sophistication of their business. And, and you know, traditional sport is a business now. As much as it's an entertainment, it's true businesses. You know, I've, I've come from the Melbourne Football Club where you're talking $60, $70 million in, in revenue per year and they're no longer amateur uh, you know, run businesses that have people essentially exiting sport and then jumping into the administrative side. It, it really relies on that, you know, that business acumen and really the ability to drive a business. And I think esports is going in that direction. There's, there's no doubt. And that's certainly the opportunity that I saw is to come in and, and take my experience from traditional sport and the structures and, and bring in that back end structure, but let the front end still be very, very creative and flourish. After the break, Mark tells us how Order closed a $5.3 million financing round. Rugby, it's a game they play in heaven. Look out for our podcast, The Running Game, where Matt Dunning joins me, Tim Gilbert. Each week, we speak to players, coaches and legends of the game. We look at the game from every angle at all levels, from test rugby, the club game, city to country and the way it's played at school. The Running Game. Come find us on your podcast app. In 2017, Riot Games began selling franchises for its game, League of Legends, at $10 million a pop. League of Legends franchises were being valued at $50 million just a year later, a five-fold increase in a year. One of the ways in which esports has grown is in a sense cozying up with traditional sports stars, clubs and franchises. Or might it be the other way around? Many of the world's biggest football clubs have an esports FIFA player or team and compete all over the world. Iconic sports names across a variety of sports have bought in. Houston Rockets were the majority shareholder of Clutch Gaming, until they sold to none other than Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, the parent company of the Philadelphia 76ers, a deal worth US $20 million, according to ESPN. The New York Yankees are in. Baseball's most valuable team has an investment partnership with Vision Esports, the largest single shareholder of three esport-related companies, Echo Fox, Twin Galaxies, and Vision Entertainment, where the two organizations manage the ecosystem of their esports properties. Patriots owner Robert Kraft is bringing a new team to Boston, read one headline, in reference to Boston having one of the first seven teams for the Overwatch League, each team costing a reported $20 million franchise fee. The owner of the New England Patriots and CEO of the Kraft Group said in a statement, the incredible global success of Overwatch since its launch, coupled with the league's meticulous focus on a structure and strategy that clearly represents the future of esports, made this the obvious entry point for the Kraft Group. Team Liquid sold the controlling interest in the team to a group of major investors under the ownership group name Axiomatic. Some of the investors, NBA Hall of Famer and co-owner of the Dodgers, Magic Johnson, co-owner of the Washington Wizards and Capitals, Ted Leonsis, and Golden State Warriors co-owner, Peter Guba. And last, but certainly not least, in a non-exhaustive list of sports teams and sports stars getting involved, David Beckham's name and association has been all over Blue Star Capital's investment into Guild Esports, and he is now referred to across all communications as co-owner in the team, not just investor. Earlier in 2021, Order sought investment of its own and announced that it had closed a $5.3 million financing round. I asked Mark about the raise to give us further insight into the gaming meets investment world. The race came about when, you know, last year we were, we were testing the liquidity market. We understood that particularly when you look at COVID, once we sort of got through that initial stage of, 
understanding where the markets were going, understanding what industries were going to be almost COVID-proof. It was pretty evident there was a lot of liquidity in the market. There was there was additional discretional spending. There was significant money being pushed into the market from government. So as an offshoot of that, we thought we needed funds to continue pushing through our strategy. So we thought, let's go and test the liquidity market. We originally tested it with very much an expansion of our esports strategy. What the market was sort of saying to us then was there was a little bit of uncertainty around the esports model being heavily underpinned by live events, which was very true at the time. And it was only just then when the transition from live events into online content creation was really sort of happening in the in the esports space. So that was at the start of 2020. We we started to, to reshape the strategy to be very content and um, what we call lifestyle gaming content focused. So it was it was really mirroring some of the successful organizations in sort of North America and Europe and their, their real pivot to, to content and online. And we saw the consumption of content going through the roof because everyone was sitting at home. So with a reshaping of that strategy and really what that meant was we were going to continue to carry through our activities in esports, but we were going to extend them to be both online event focused, content creation focused, and then looking at some of the ancillary or peripheral um, revenue opportunities. We took that strategy back to the market and and tested it again. And and that was something that was a lot clearer for particularly for for funders, uh, fundies, I should say, or or VC organizations to, to sort of sink their teeth into. They could understand the revenue model a lot better. And again, it was it was leveraging some of the the platforms that they very well knew um, firsthand. So, off the back of that, um, you know, the macro environment was probably something that we really lent against or lent into. Yeah, you know, there was significant and clear valuations from our global peers. Uh, we had um, organisations regularly recording hundred plus million dollar valuations over there, and, and there was you know, between ten and fourteen times multipliers being bantered around, which were probably somewhat inflated when we look back at it now, but you know, still clear and significant valuations from that global peer group, which was eliciting interest from you know, local VC funders. And you know, off the back of that, it became very clear that there was a pretty nascent market in Australia, but we were, as we are in everything, we're probably two or three years typically behind US markets when we're talking you know, creative and cultural sort of spaces. So that nascent market was something that was of interest. And then I suppose beyond that was it, it became very clear and very evident that it was COVID proof. So, you know, we're talking late 2020 now and, and the industry just continued to, to sort of move forward. So all those elements really pointed towards a lot of interest from the liquidity market again. And, and then off the back of that and some, some really good conversations and strong conversations, we were able to attract a, a significant investment. And what that ended up being was that the biggest investment into esports and gaming um, or an esports and gaming organisation in Australia and New Zealand. And that was sort of the macro environment. But from an order perspective, it was very much about proving who we are and where, you know, we have a clear strategy of expansion. It was a very, what we think is, is very robust and, and somewhat proven strategy. We're an early mover also in, in the esports space. And, and you know, really that, that aggressive expansion plan also to enter other markets was, was really key. So, yeah, off the back of that, the, the, the money was able to be raised and, and you know, moving forward where, We've, we've probably spent the last uh, four or five months really um, getting getting our strategy in line. You know, it, it was there, but the, there's one thing to put a strategy on paper, but then the actual execution of that um, is, is you know, somewhat different. And I'm sure some of your listeners would understand that when you when you actually go and action that market, there's a lot of moving parts. So we'll start to drop some things now. Um, you know, from the next, I'd say the next 
sort of two to three weeks, our organization will start to look very different than what it's probably looked like in the past three or four years. And that's a, that's a really exciting phase for us. And, you know, it really includes attracting a mass audience. It includes driving the whole industry forward. It's looking at other what we call pop culture industries in gaming, fashion and music and, and how they can add an audience to us and then how we go and monetize that audience and, and drive revenue through uh, you know, a number of different streams and start returning value back to shareholders. Whilst it is truly headline stuff when sports stars invest in esports, the reality is esports has stars of its own. Perhaps none bigger than its first crossover star, Tyler Blevins, better known as Ninja. Blevins has said publicly in an ESPN interview that he easily earns seven figures a month. It makes sense when you consider the esports star's reach. With 7 million followers on Twitter, 25 million subscribers on his YouTube channel, and with over 16 million followers on Twitch, Ninja is the most followed esports player on the planet. The result? Tyler Blevins appears on shows like Ellen, and he has multi-million dollar sponsorship deals with the likes of Samsung, Red Bull, and Uber Eats. So consider, esports has stars of its own. Its media rights opportunities are growing fast and stretching beyond the traditional Amazon Twitch and Google Alphabet platforms. For instance, Activision Blizzard signed a multi-year deal with Walt Disney to broadcast the Overwatch League on linear television. The deal covers multiple Disney-controlled networks, including ESPN, Disney XD, and ABC. Now add in that, esports companies are constantly buying and selling teams and players to compete in the best leagues and build audiences. With commercial growth comes many regulatory and integrity issues, especially once gambling is involved. Like traditional sports, doping and match-fixing issues have made their way into esports. And what of this stigma attached to gaming, that as gaming grows, physical activity declines? I spoke to Mark about the health and social implications that esports executives like him are acutely conscious of. Mark first addresses the myth of sorts that gaming is inherently unhealthy or antisocial. I think it, it, it really comes from really where, where gaming and esports originated, and that was single-player games. You know, I grew up playing uh, Nintendo 64, and that's probably going to show my age, PlayStation, and really that was, was very much single-player games. And if anything, you would catch up with your mates and, and sit on a couch, but that stereotype has completely changed. You know, they're, they're, our gamers now and gamers in general, are they're healthy, they're educated, you know, they exercise, they, they live normal lives. There's a, a, a huge collection of white-collar people that, that associate with being gamers. So, you know, while it can be unfairly leveled in the past, and, and sorry, and also the, the the real movement of multiplayer games, there's 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 not a huge emphasis or nowhere near the emphasis there used to be on single player games. You know, most games now are, are multiplayer games. There's three versus three or three v three, five v five, six v six, and it's really then about creating communities. You know, the the, the rising of um, platforms like Twitch, YouTube, Facebook gaming have all meant that no longer do people jump on the console or on the PC to necessarily escape, they're actually getting on to connect with like-minded people. And yes, it's it happens inside, but it's like, you know, we, we liken it to reading a book or going to the movies or sitting down and watching Netflix. It's, it has absolutely no difference from that. You know, if anything, it, it probably encourages greater cognitive abilities and, and actually cognitive improvement. So, you know, from a physical point of view, again, the, the stereotypes completely disappeared. Is, what does it look like moving forward? Again, I think the world in general is, is far more conscious of, of physical health, but also mental health. And we've got 
you know, a huge emphasis internally on, on welfare programs. And again, you know, if we go right back to the start of the show and your question about similarities in traditional sport, the welfare programs that traditional sport have, have implemented in the past decade are really going to be mirrored in, in esports as well. And it is a huge focus on, okay, what do you need to, to increase your physical health? Um, but then that extends into you know, mental health practices. A lot of our guys are, are using meditation. They understand anxiety a lot more. And it's really those welfare programs that we're trying to implement as well carry across, as I said, they carry across physical health, mental health, and also financial welfare. There's, there's, a, there's an element there to, to sort of speak to. And I know that's not, not part of this question, but we're, we're dealing with 16 to 22, 23-year-olds that arguably haven't ever earned a dollar in their life. And now they're getting paid to play computer games. So we feel like we've got a significant responsibility to ensure that their, their financial welfare is also looked after, or at least they, we can provide them the tools in which to do that. It, the modern day game, isn't what they used to be and and you know even if you look at the ability to perform on a sport field the ability to perform in front of a camera the ability to you know really perform at your best in in anything you do is reliant on having physical health so our guys are hyper focused on that and and really being the best version of themselves when researching for this episode i found much more written on the community aspect of the esports world than i perhaps expected I was surprised to find then plenty of media with a kind of eye-roll tone so as to accuse esports of cashing in due to COVID at a time when most other industries, especially traditional sport, were hurting. I wanted to ask Mark about the COVID-19 impact on the gaming industry and I suppose pick apart the media that had concluded that the growth of esports through the pandemic was a negative. In the early stages of, of COVID, gaming certainly had a moment where, or I should say the esports part of our industry was, was very much focused on live events. And as we know, live events shut down. So everything started to pivot and move to both online events, but, but the, you know, the, the consumption of content, as we know, just went absolutely through the roof. And that's really where I think you saw a real movement in the gaming and esports industry for brands to understand the true value of what was being produced. You know, we, we all know the old marketing adage that content is king and it's, it's the easiest way to the, to the hearts and minds of, of an audience. But really the, the onset of COVID and the, the significant increase in audience for platforms like YouTube, platforms like Twitch, led to a huge um, increase in awareness of, of gaming and what I call it is, you know, reference it as the, as the barbecue test. And when I started speaking to my, you know, my group of mates and, and mentioned that I was getting into to esports and gaming, the immediate reaction was, oh, that's absolutely popping off. And it was a surefire way to, to understand that if, you know, people that are um, very distant from the industry have heard about it and, and understand it, that, you know, that was really the, the, the primary impact of COVID was was raising the awareness, and and what that awareness does is is not only bring about an increase of gaming being a safe space and being okay, it also raises the awareness for brands. And I think you know we we, we have a significant um, pipeline of of brands looking to enter gaming and esports, and and really that's off the back of COVID. People people understand now that this is a viable industry. Um, it's sophisticated enough to actually deliver value. Two brands, um, and then off the back of that comes increased revenue streams for these organisations that can continue to be reinvested and really just build the industry to to be where it is um, overseas. But I suppose the other point of it is it's it's really people understanding that creating communities online is is what gaming and esports does. And we kind of touched on it before. It's not 
you don't necessarily have to game to escape or, or be, uh, you know, trying to separate yourselves from from communities. It's really getting online to, to create communities. And I think parents are now a lot more okay and, again, know that that's a safe space for their for their kids to, to jump on. And, and again, all of this has is, is really come off the back of that increase in awareness from the events of last year. To wrap up with Mark... He draws some interesting analogies between the trajectory of gaming and esports and other industries in the past. Where is gaming going? Well, I think it's you know, gaming is really the newest form of entertainment and, and arguably the most innovative form of entertainment that we've seen in a long time. And you know, you don't want to necessarily liken it to the movement from theatre into into film, but if you have a look at how radical the change has been from how we consumed content, how we connected to where we are now, particularly with gaming, it, it, it really is. It's, it's, the, it's the newest form of entertainment that really has, you know, taken the world by storm. It, it's, it's often looked at as, as the new music, but it's not necessarily the new music or a replacement for music. It, it has a very similar stakeholder and a very similar IP structure. But it is, it's, it, it's another medium in which for people to express their creative vocations, their, their creative abilities, but it's also... Uh, you know, we're in a we're in a world that has come off the back of, you know, events of, of COVID, the events of Black Lives Matter, the the Me Too movement. There's a there's a real sort of conscious bias towards being uh, or or just being a good person and having fun. And gaming fits perfectly into that. So it doesn't isolate anyone. It's it's male, it's female. You know, you can you can be sitting in a wheelchair. There is absolutely no boundary. For, for gaming and and we certainly look at a world where you know the girls are beating the boys um, or the girls are competing alongside you know they arguably have better problem solving than than males they you know cognitive ability is is probably better as well let's be honest um, and then they have no physical limitations so you know there's there's the competitive side there's the the entertainment side it's inclusive and really it's 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 not going to stop you've got an age of the gen z population now so you know 16 to 25 year olds that are arguably going to be the next biggest consumer group but they're also going to be parents in in the next 10 years so there's this whole generation now that's going to come through so we can't see it stopping um, we're really excited it's 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 dripping with authenticity as well you know that's a that's a really positive side of it Gaming sits in the sweet spot of so many of these these things, and and really, it's moved away from subculture. Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely in popular culture, and and if anything, it's really driving the next wave of youth culture. Yeah, you know, there's there's so many crossovers in in streetwear and in art and fashion, um, and and music that um, yeah, it is it is really driving forward that that next wave of of youth culture. So we're really looking forward to uh, yeah the decades ahead. Bring on gaming and order up. As the world moves more and more online and into the digital world, the consensus is that esports are here to stay, and in a seriously big way. Only time will tell as to the success of esports, but if trajectory and trend is anything to go by, esports might be an exciting long-term bet for fans and investors alike. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Sportonomic. Make sure you find the show, follow and subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Tune in next episode where I look at the recent decision of the Supreme Court of the United States that may well change college sports in America forever. A huge thank you to this week's guest, Mark Edwards from Order. Thank you to our sponsors, Athlon Partners. You can find further detail at www.athlonpartners.com. And thanks to our producer, Dan McHugh. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter, at Reese Lenarduzzi. Sportonomic is an afternoon sport group production.